This is Subject Matter, the show for creators who want to grow with audio. I'm Ben Bradbury. A few decades ago, if you were a creator and you wanted to engage an audience pre-internet, you had to take the stage. You had to do it in person, you had to rally people around and actually get them physically to listen to you. Now today, the internet is a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because you can reach way more people than ever, but it's a curse because you're competing with thousands and thousands of other priorities. Now my guest today, Mike Piddock, is an expert in this new way of creating events and what we call a hybrid event, which is both in-person and virtual blended together. His company, Glissa, is a tech platform that allows you to deliver these hybrid events. And so I was really curious to understand from Mike how these events are going to be growing because as a creator, bringing your audience together in person or over the internet, building that community is such a critical piece of moving from being a thought leader in your space, sharing your ideas to being seen as a voice of authority. And so today we'll talk about how in this post-pandemic world, when you're building these events, Mike thinks you want to think less like an event planner and more like a television producer where you're conscious of your programming, you're conscious that someone can switch to another channel at any time, and that's okay. You should allow people to channel hop. You should make the breaks between your content engaging and you should match the speaker to the format of your event. So if you're working with a creator who's very technical, who's got 10 to 15 years experience, but they haven't taken the stage a lot, they're probably better suited to a panel discussion where they can open up organically versus having a presentation behind them where they're delivering all these slides. So we're going to talk about these nuances of how different creators are matched to different formats and the nuts and bolts of how you can deliver amazing event experiences, whether that's in person or digitally. This is a really fun one packed with insights from Mike, and I hope you enjoy. Mike, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, Ben. Good to see you. So uh, this is a pretty special episode. I'm coming to you live from Brooklyn, New York. And for those of you who don't know, Mike and I worked together at Glissa, his company, which we can talk all about five or six years ago. And Mike originally was the person who had the vision to expand Glissa over to the US. And I happened to get very lucky being in the right place at the right time. So uh, on air, on the record, Mike, thanks a bunch for taking a chance on me. I really appreciate it. No worries. It's really nice to see someone, I think you were like fairly fresh out of uni, Mm -hmm. being happy to take that jump. You know, we sort of said we needed a man out there, a man or a woman out there, and you were willing to give it a go, which, you know, that's great to see. And hopefully it was a Hopefully it was a good move for you. Absolutely. One of the best. I appreciate that. Well, today we're going to talk about where events are going and the kind of role that they can play for both creators and leaders who are building companies and communities. So what's kind of interesting about where we're up to in 2022 is that events have really been reshaped by the pandemic. And now we're in this kind of new category of events, which I know Glissa is big in, this idea of the hybrid event. So talk to us a little bit about where hybrid events started. Was that before the pandemic? Was it in the pandemic? And how has that got us to where we are today? Yeah, I mean, we hybrid events, I guess, first of all, sort of explain what hybrid events are. So hybrid events are events that have both a physical in-person component and a digital slash virtual component. And sometimes those things are both happening at the same time. So you have a live in-person element and a live digital, so a live stream. But also the definition does widen to include 
kind of any events that have digitized elements, even if those things are on demand afterwards. So there's, it's quite a wide bracket, actually, to include it. And the digitization of events has been happening for many years. You know, we've, we all know about event apps appearing and, and audience response and things like that. So there's been a gradual digitization of events. But hybrid, as we kind of know it in terms of there being a live video feed live an audience virtually that was starting to happen before covid we were certainly working with some of our clients who were buying our in-room audience engagement product and they were asking us to add in like a youtube feed or a vimeo feed or a zoom feed because they were starting to recognize that some of their audience members weren't able to travel or they wanted to reach new audiences beyond their traditional uh, destinations and so by integrating those video feeds we were effectively running hybrid events so we had a toe in it pre-covid but it certainly wasn't anything that was so big that I was saying, right, this is absolutely the area we need to move into. We need to drop everything and pivot into this space. It was niche, but it was interesting. And you could see that as video and live video was becoming more prominent on the internet, it was something that was going to happen. We just didn't know the pace that it was going to happen. It's interesting as well to me how the ability to stream video is the kind of technological unlocker for that. I think a lot of people forget that media is technology and its constituent components. And I look at a podcast, the reason that podcasts are able to do what they're doing is because of the smartphone from 2007, then exploding out into the world, and also the cost of data getting lower and lower. You've kind of been able to ride a similar trend, which is people having more access to data, more access to streaming, so that events can kind of follow you wherever you go. Yeah, I mean, video really is, is the internet now. We th- I remember when we were starting out, there were companies that were just sort of getting into short form video. Vine was still in existence, and but it was really in its infancy. And kind of the rise of video has coincided with the the years as our pod, as our business has grown. And then those two things really converged pretty much as the pandemic hit, and suddenly video just became so important. Not least because one of the sort of things that I felt was blocking video in the kind of corporate enterprise space was the fact that everybody was in an office. And in those offices, people didn't necessarily have headphones and listen to audio and have it on because the office environment wasn't ripe for that. As soon as everybody moved to home and they were in their own offices and their own quiet environment, suddenly you could have audio on the whole time. You could dip into video because you had that private space. So it was really a convergence of many things that just accelerated the market and leaves us where we are today. How do you think about keeping people's attention over a long form video? Because as you said, short form videos everywhere, TikTok is on the rise as well, but you guys kind of play in the the realm of content that's 30, 45, 60 minutes plus, or even out, out to a full day worth of programming. When you're talking to your clients and kind of thinking, helping them think through content strategy using this virtual or hybrid event platform, what are the kind of recommendations you're giving to help keep their audiences engaged? Yeah, this is interesting because the early days of kind of virtual when the pandemic hit, we saw a lot of our clients simply transferring the the agenda and the event structure that they'd operated in room over to a virtual environment. So you traditionally had 30 minute or one hour presentation segments. And yeah, you have a huge challenge retaining people's interest virtually on that kind of time frame. And those time frames aren't 
the same things that govern you when you're running a virtual event. So when you're running a physical event, you kind of lump things into large content blocks because people are stuck in their seats. You don't want people constantly shuffling in and out of those seats, tripping into people's knees, creating this confusion. You've also got to think about like the transition of people around a venue and how they move around physically. And when you're in a virtual space, you don't need to worry about that because you don't need to think about traffic routes and you don't need to lock people into one place for an extended period of time in order to control that flow of human beings. So you're not constrained by the same constraints, but people were kind of just dropping their existing event structures into that. And we quickly learned and they quickly learned that you need to stop thinking like an event planner and you need to start thinking more like a television producer. So you've got to recognize that short is better, instant, keep that gratification levels up, go to more breaks, fill the breaks with something interesting, allow people to move around like channel hop. You know, you don't, it doesn't matter if they hop between multiple rooms online because you, it doesn't create a disturbance. It just means they're moving to the thing that interests them most. And then we started talking to our clients about thinking like they were, you, you know, this was YouTube. This isn't an event. This is YouTube, right? So start thinking about if I'm watching a YouTube video, it's only 90 seconds long, three minutes long, but then I'm being shown six related options down the side, which I then go to and I then go to and I then go to. And we all know about like the YouTube hole where you start watching a video and three hours later you pop up and you're like, what have I done with my life? It's the same principle. If you've got good content and you put it into the format that keeps people engaged and you keep feeding them the next piece and the next piece, you can give them an interesting live event experience, but it's about changing that, that mindset. I love this idea of thinking less like an event planner and more like a television producer because the producer is all about programming and you recognize that the consumer's attention is a very fickle thing and they could jump to literally thousands of other inputs that are equally as interesting as you. One of our creators at Workweek, Nick Sharma, he talks about he has one of the highest open rates on his newsletter and has a really engaged audience. And he says when he's writing that... He feels like at any sentence, at any interval, I can potentially lose the audience's attention at any point, any word. And that's kind of the, the standard you, I think you have to hold yourself to is that the kind of core content, you're in competition with the internet. And so actually assuming that you don't take their attention for granted, I think is a great way of looking at it. If you were to take that analogy one step further beyond just the the programming, I think the television producer also acknowledges that their talent on the box is what really makes or breaks a, a show. If you have a show that has a great actor or actress that can really carry it in a lot of cases or a great host, for example. And so how do you think about empowering the people who are actually using or at the center of the virtual event themselves because the speaker is obviously like a very important piece of the event yeah i mean and that's a tricky one because i've always felt that even pre-virtualization when you were running business events so many of the speakers aren't speaker trained or aren't particularly comfortable speaking and might just be speaking because their company is paid for a slot or you know they might be great in terms of producing the content and they might be a super brain but they become very nervous when they're on stage. And, and it's always been a challenge. If you're an event organizer, you book all these speakers and to understand whether they're actually going to be any good and whether they're actually going to be able to hold an audience's, hold their attention and whether the content they're going to deliver is good. And so many events ran without any kind of rehearsals. So it was kind of like, well, we're just like going to hope that they're good. So rehearsals 
apply equally to a virtual event as a physical event. You've got to understand that and understand whether that person's going to be any good. You've got to look at their previous speaking slots. So much of it is on video now. You can understand how they deliver. So you can get a little bit more of a gauge on, on an individual speaker now. The second thing is about formats. So I really believe that some speakers are great at doing PowerPoint presentations. They kind of, they're in their flow. They've built a really tight deck. They've got it down to a fine art and they can absolutely nail it and engage you and hold you throughout the session. Whereas others really come into the fore when they're in more like panel sessions or audience Q&A sessions because they're less comfortable presenting information. But if you challenge them with a technical question, great, that's right in their wheelhouse. They can get it, they can respond, they can create a dialogue and and often technical people so developers science people people like that, that sort of deep knowledge find it more comfortable in that format so again the selection of the format that you're running can make a big difference and then finally like it's kind of this universal Q&A thing we've been doing it like we've been doing it for years in room but as we've started doing virtual events it's really common to get the audience starting to interact and and I always felt in a regular presentation that the Q&A at the end was the bit where it became interesting, right? You might have somebody challenging the speaker, contradicting the speaker, even arguments. I was kind of like, I want that. That's what I want to see. That's why I'm here. That's that's why I'm live, right? Because if you're not getting that audience participating, you may as well just pre-record it, right? Just pre-record it, play it, fine. The fact that it's live allows you to get that kind of impromptu, unexpected engagement and take the conversation in a different direction and then it gets exciting. So again, I would advocate trimming down the kind of the PowerPoint content, keeping it tight and, and involving the audience a lot more and creating a lot more dialogue because that's the point of being live. I really love this idea as well of matching the speaker to the format and realizing that just because you've got someone up on stage doesn't mean that they're seeing the stage the same way. I look at someone like a Simon Sinek, who I saw speak a few years ago, incredibly polished. The man has given thousands and thousands of keynotes and he could probably recite his keynotes from memory with no notes. But then if you compare that to a subject matter expert, someone who has 15, 20 years deep domain expertise, but has maybe taken the stage less than 20 times, it's going to require a completely different experience to bring them out of their shell. And so what I think is cool about that is you're really having empathy for the talent and making sure that the person who has got the limelight feels as comfortable as possible. Before you run an event and after you run an event, what do you think is key to having a successful onboarding and offboarding experience? So kind of everything around the experience itself, how do you set up the people that you work with for success, both on the ramp up and then the ramp down as well? So there, are you looking at the event organizers or are you talking about the speakers? So we go, or both or? Let, how, yeah, how, let's how, do how, one at a time. Let's stick with the speakers and then we can transition to the, the back end. Yeah, so, so I mean, speakers, I'm generalizing a bit, but they're either coming with an enormous amount of confidence or they're coming with a low amount of confidence. And it tends to be like they're, yeah, they've done it many times before. And you, we've seen many speakers that are perhaps, yeah, they, they like that position of control and the organization and feel like, let me do my thing. I've got this. Let me do my thing. With those sorts of speakers, what you've got to do is really you know, set them up and get out their way. So you've really got to make sure that they're clear. If they're using a different platform, if it's something that's not familiar, they know what each of the buttons does. They, they don't need a whole bunch of distractions. They're kind of like, I just want it to work. Once, once you let them go, they're all good. So for them, it's making it as 
simple as possible and nothing to go wrong. They can concentrate on what they're good at. For the speakers where there's perhaps a greater degree of nervousness, that nervousness is coming out of the content. It's coming out of their lack of familiarity with delivery or the, what they've got to present rather than the platform itself. They actually need that little bit more. They need maybe some a sense that right the platform's going to be taken care of but they don't need to know what all the buttons are doing. They don't need to know all the superfluous stuff that's just going to be a distraction to them because their focus absolutely has to be on delivering their message. Now, when we're onboarding speakers, you know, we've got a lot of experience of understanding what works and what doesn't work on virtual. So our technicians are kind of imparting that as well. So there is a sense of like, look, let's you know, make sure you're looking at the camera. This is how you should set your camera up and so on. So there's some guidance that's being given there. But basically, they don't need any noise at all because they're focused on, you know, they, they've got to get through their content. And you can help them like certainly a timid speaker will want a rehearsal, they will appreciate a rehearsal. And if you offer rehearsal, great because it gives them a chance especially if you can record it play they can play it back generally speaking those speakers that are more confident they don't want the bother of rehearsal they have this mental position that they know what they're doing they don't need it and it's kind of trying to understand that there's different types and you should set up differently for our event planners that's the onboarding of planners the organizers of the events is, is absolutely fundamental because our business works by those event planners picking up more and more of the roles and being able to do them, particularly in a hybrid environment themselves, rather than the cost of additional people to support them. Now, one of the fears of hybrid is that it creates cost because you're running two things for two different audiences. And so you need more manpower to deliver that. If you are able to reduce the additional manpower to deliver the virtual piece, then you're really you're reducing that cost risk. And so the more that we can train our um, event planners to do a lot of the build and set up themselves, the better. They still We still tend to find that for very large events, they really do like someone on site as well, someone supporting live. You know, you, you've run this session today, you're setting the system go, you can run it alone. But if you're running, you know, a multi-stage, multi-stream, all-day, multi-day event with several thousand people attending, you know, having those extra people that really get this and do it all the time is important. You know, for uh, for many event planners, running an event, even a virtual event, is a once a year, a handful of times a year thing that you have to do. So their event is their Super Bowl, right? We're doing many, many events every single day, and our technicians are doing many events. Every one of our customers, this is their Super Bowl, but to us, this is just how we work. So. Let us handle your Super Bowl and take some of that stress off you so you can concentrate on the things that are also stressful, like speakers or you know, missing speakers in particular or people not logging in and all of that sort of stuff. I think that's the really powerful unlock with a lot of businesses that are kind of looking to take their media and their brand to the next level is pairing the the talent the expertise that you have in-house with operational expertise either in your team or outsourced as a partner that you're working with and that i think is the kind of cool value prop with a service like glisser is you can go to them and say hey don't worry at all about your hybrid or your live event build we can just come in and do that and then the best thing is that lets your team scale their time you can literally do more with more hours in the day because you have less things to worry about less things on your plate and so for physical events it's, they've always been something which has required bodies right because they are big they are physical whether it's guys lugging boxes or av technicians or staff serving food the events what always makes me laugh is the event industry is one where 
they will have people holding arrows to direct people around routes rather than just put a sign in. It's almost yeah. like it's, it's cheaper to have a person holding an arrow that you can move around or turn the arrow to face the other way <laughs> than to put a sign in or an iPad or something like that. So it's always been an industry that's kind of thrown bodies at problems. But And so then when you move to virtual, we want to automate as much as possible and allow it to be run by like one person sitting remotely. But there's nothing wrong with you know getting some support, getting that assistance from people that do this day in, day out. It's just it's another body to add to your team. And it gives you that peace of mind, which allows you to say, right, the virtual piece is taken care of because I've got to deal with catering or I've got to deal with transport and logistics and that stuff is what I know and what I can go after. So we try to find that balance. Many of our clients run lots of really small events just without us and then take us on board for the very, very large events. So it's kind of a horses for courses situation. I'd love to switch gears now to look at another application of the hybrid event or the virtual event, which is internal communications. So we've spoken a bit about how they're used to engage external audiences. And you said a line when we were preparing for this interview that really stuck with me, which is that internal comms has been the poor relation to external comms. Let's talk a little bit about the use case here. So how do you think you can use a hybrid event or a virtual event to keep audiences engaged. And also let's look at this from the perspective of a creator as well, because I think a trend that we're seeing kind of across the board is that people or evangelists are coming to represent companies. You look at somewhere like Salesforce where Tiffany Bova is, I think, branded as a cultural anthropologist. Her job is to look at how organizations thrive and it's very much the person that you build trust with. So with that in mind, how do you think hybrid and virtual events can be used by these organizations that are using talent ever more to kind of galvanize their employees and get their staff moving in the same direction? Yeah, and so I think to sort of caveat my statement about the poor relation, I think I, you know, I started my career, my first job when I came out of uni was in an internal comms department and sort of saw it from the inside. And your role then, this, this was 20 years ago. So the role then was at communications around a large global organization. It was the kind of the dawn of the intranet, posting on there, making sure that CEO messaging was getting down. And you were already using like mass all company conference calls. So dialing in and sort of listening in and going on mute and all of that stuff. So it was kind of the very dawn, I guess, of internal comms as a fun function. And the following 20 years, I'm not sure how much it has kept pace with what's happening in marketing or what's happening in external communications. And I'm not sure whether the budgets have kept pace as well. And I always think that's odd because so many companies will say, you know, our employees are our most important asset and never more so than the fact that most of those or many of those employees are now sitting at home rather than coming into the office where you can see them and see what you're paying for. And so suddenly you've got this challenge and it's a new challenge, which is, as a business owner or a business owner of a very large organization, you've got all these people scattered everywhere. They're your most important asset. And so how are you communicating to them? And how are you listening to them? Because before you could communicate to them, you could cascade things down through the kind of office structure. You could have the local country manager stand up in front of the whole team every week, you know, take them for drinks, do the things that large businesses did in this kind of cascade waterfall fashion. And you listen to them, you might do staff surveys and things like that, but or you just listen to them because they're doing one-to-ones and meetings and so on. But Now that we've kind of moved towards a hybrid working environment, and I think hybrid working is here to stay, I think different industries will have different preferences. But generally speaking, the data that I'm seeing is we're flatlining at this point where 
office workers are spending about 50% of their time on average in the office and 50% at home. And that's what the data is showing. So this feels like a permanent change in work. And so you've got so many people at home and in any business, 50% of people will be at home at any one point and 50% will be in the office. Suddenly that's a new challenge to being purely virtual because you've got to deliver communications which works for the people in the office. So it's got to be engaging. It could be should be face-to-face because you're there. Why shouldn't it be? But at the same time, at that point in time, you've got 50% of people virtual. So you've got to cater for them and you've got to avoid a poor relation. You know, does the CEO speak to the camera or does the CEO speak to the room of people that are there? Or does the CEO get trained to look at both camera and in-room audiences? And so you've got all of these new challenges. And so that's the thing that people are trying to solve at the moment. And so coming back to the creatives then, as internal communications people have access to newer tools, better tools, including ours, not just us, but including ours, to deliver messages better and to listen to audiences and get their viewpoints and get their votes and get feedback and data and interaction and to combine virtual audiences and physical audiences as they use these tools. At the same time, the creative talent need to keep pace with that. They need to say, well, actually, now these companies that say these employees are really important to us are using digital tools to reach them. And they want those tools to be impressive. They want the content to be impressive. They want it to feel buzzy and interesting. They don't want it to be just another Zoom call. That's the thing, right? So all the virtual employees are on, on average, seven Zoom calls a day. If you're giving off a big message or there's a bigger company announcement or you want to create excitement, just going to a Zoom call isn't going to cut it because that's just the eighth Zoom call that day. And just because it's the CEO speaking doesn't make it many any more interesting. So you've, stuck with a, you've got to be creative to convey the message now because the volume of Zoom calls has created this noise that means the message is getting lost. So I'm kind of a, it's an ask of the creative community to go, just because it's internal doesn't make it like less good than doing outbound marketing. And I think that's, the, for me, it's a challenge to the community. That's a great challenge. It also makes me kind of think about a framework that we can use when building out this communication is that if you're splitting between in-person and virtually, I think it's wise to assume that you need to make the communication a great virtual experience first and foremost, because if you're only optimizing for in-person and virtuals and afterthoughts, and then half of your audience isn't actually in the room, you're going to end up with an incredibly disengaged experience. And that might be from poor mic quality poor video or just not really thinking through the the logistics of what a remote experience looks like and so making sure that your communication works for your team or your audience virtually first and then in person second i think is is super important now to take a little step back when we were working together six years ago five years ago I think the only times when I would work at home were when I was on the road running an event. So going on site and supporting with Glissa. Every other day I was in the office in London. Most of the time it was it was five days a week. And now your company culture looks quite different, having shifted to a predominantly remote workforce and with hybrid as a transition. What's it been like kind of transitioning the, the Glissa culture to be more forward thinking in this remote first world as well? Yeah, I, I would definitely think the focus on culture and employees was the fundamental thing that we cared about when we transitioned. And we, as you say, we went fully virtual as soon as COVID hit. And then we tried a hybrid model. 
And now we've gone back fully virtual and closed all of our offices. Going fully virtual the first time was actually really enjoyable because suddenly our colleagues in our US offices, who were much more satellite, sort of satellite design anyway, felt like empowered and equal to our London colleagues. So suddenly, instead of doing an all company meeting where there were 40 people in London staring at one camera in the office, and then people dialing in from the States, suddenly you were all equal size squares on a Zoom call. So you all had equal validity and it felt like it brought the US team super close, which was great. We recognized that bringing people together and spending time with each other and doing things face-to-face is valuable. So that's why we tried the hybrid model when we could. But it was really challenging because we had got so proficient at working from home that it was just creating new challenges as people were going back into the office and trying to run Zoom calls together, whether some people in the room and some people at home. We were finding that people were coming into the office and not really using that time in an effective way for face-to-face work. It was too sporadic. And we were hiring beyond London to places which really didn't make travel convenient. So we sort of bit the bullet and said, "This we know that going fully virtual is going to create additional challenges. But overall, we think it's the right model for our business. And we will really work hard to make sure that the culture works even when we do that. So since we've gone fully virtual, we're doing monthly meetups. We fly everyone in from if they can't travel, if they're not close to London. We really focus on those days being on things that are good to do face-to-face, whiteboarding, creative stuff, mixing teams and getting them to understand each other's job roles so that we never sit down and open our laptops and just do calls. So we've been doing that about three or four months now and it's really working and the feedback's good. So I think overall we've figured out a path for us. Personally, I like being in the office and one of the challenges I think next is for those people that like that experience, making sure that they've got the right support network or the right means to go in and use you know, freelancer spaces and so on. Because there's one thought as a CEO, which is what makes this work for the business, but also how my employees work handling this? What's it doing to mental health? Is everybody happy with this structure? It might be efficient for the business, but is it keeping people happy? And we have to balance those those two things. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, businesses are the sum of their people. And when you're working in media and, and technology, which I think both of us are, those businesses are just people businesses fundamentally it's how you execute and how the team comes together and if the team doesn't feel happy doesn't feel like they've got that kind of cultural glue then it's going to impact performance so it's super important to kind of keep tabs on i also really like how the frequency of interactions might have gone down but the the kind of vibrancy of interactions has gone up. It actually reminds me kind of of what's happened to me moving stateside, now seeing my family. Every time I see my family now, we make the days count. There's no kind of like half-assed interactions because the time is more scarce. And so it means I always show up as the best version of myself. They show up as the best versions of themselves. And we make memories because of that. And there's, I think you can do the same thing in the workforce. The one advantage of a workforce is that you can pick your workforce as well. You can't pick your family, right? So, yeah. so and this leads to the point that I think hiring suddenly becomes really important. So mm-hmm. hiring people that can work and fit this culture and this environment mm. is really, really important because so much of it is autonomous that it slightly changed the profile that we're looking for because we know that they will work out in with this structure rather than an in-office structure. And that's really important because as lockdown evolved, and it went from virtual to hybrid to vir- like the type of character and personality and, and fit 
changed mm -hmm. when we knew that we were going to be fully virtual because you had to pick people that were the right fit for that working environment. And I think that's really important for business to understand that they're not doing this in, at a moment in time. Here's my workforce. We're going down this route. They've actually got to shift all of their structures and their processes to make sure that they kind of evolve into the best business for the working structure that they operate. That's interesting. How do you assess for people that fit that culture in the interview process? Are there questions that you ask them? Are there traits that you particularly look for, past experiences? How do you make sure they're going to thrive in that environment? I think one of the things that we've done that, that works really well is, is much more of a kind of a, a testing, like not like a live test, but kind of here's a mini project. Can you go off and do it and then and present to us back at the next session? Sure. So you're kind of, you have that opportunity to have them kind of do the work, do some work. So you're like, hey, I'm going to give you a broad set of instructions. You can go off and then you can come in and you know, present us. I, you know, I didn't do that a lot when we were doing face-to-face -face interviews. It was kind of, okay, get the personality fit, skill set, technical. And for somebody to be going away and given a project or a test wasn't a process that I went through. I think now it's quite easy. People are kind of familiar with it. Great, like I'm working from home. I've got an hour to spend on this piece of work. Presenting it over Zoom, it's a great case. You know, can, how does someone conduct themselves virtually? Because suddenly for customer success reps, for salespeople, how you come across on video is really important. And that can be very different to how you might come across in a face-to-face -face meeting. And people that you know, have, have skills that work virtually are suddenly really valuable because you know, that's how you convey yourself. You've only got this 2D window to get things across and other people that might have used kind of physical presence or that whole walking into a room thing to create awe and suddenly that skill is slightly diminished because you know, a lot of our sales activities taking place virtually it's not about running around to client locations and sitting down and having meetings and yeah so it's, it's a sort of shift in the profile and a shift slight shift in the type of skills and i think the personality mm -hmm. that matters yeah mm. let's have a look to the future now so when you think about what the future of hybrid events looks like, it was kind of interesting hearing that Netflix is actually a big inspiration for you in how they've built out their business. Can you speak a bit about why Netflix is an inspiration for you as you think about Gliss's roadmap going into the future? Yeah, so one of the things that we've seen this year is that real interest from our clients in on-demand content. So I think this is a product of kind of three years of virtual and running so many events and just accumulating this enormous library of video and presentations and content that really is, you know, in many cases, kind of evergreen content. It's valuable, whether it's training or technical or sales or materials or speakers that they've been able to get that they wouldn't have got in the physical event. They've got this huge library and it's not really being presented back or reused in a very good way. In many cases, they just sort of got the old event site still live and you can kind of navigate in and find some of the sessions or they might have taken a youtube video and just iframed it into a page on their website and it's not gated for lead gathering it's not gathering any data or analytics it's, it's kind of very simple and it feels like they've got a library of assets of value and it's not being exploited and so we looked at it and sort of said well how do we make our product really good at taking existing uh, live event content and making it better on demand and we sort of just we obviously pointed to things like netflix and amazon as what's the user experience there it's super clean it's a lot of like related content so if you like this you'll like this it's very easy to navigate and we said well 
why do any different? I've said we're kind of like TV producers now. If you're a TV producer for a live virtual event, then you're all, you're a Netflix provider for on-demand content. And so we've built what we call a theme, and it's we internally we call it our Netflix theme, but I think we, we call it an on-demand hub to our customers. And it's exactly that. It's much more simplified. It brings in content from multiple events. Your events don't even need to have been run on our platform. You just need to have the video, and we can pull it through. And then you've got a much better user experience, simple search, categorized and as you build up your library you create new events you get more content you can just drop it in and it automatically adds all the filters in and so on so and i think that's important because a lot of clients are sort of looking at next year are we going to do hybrid events we're we going to do virtual events we're we going to do something physical actually they're sitting on a load of content that whether even if your plans for 2023 haven't been made yet make the most of the materials you made in 2020 2021 and 2022 and this is kind of a, the next evolution, I think, of video, corporate videos that you know, have come from events, but they, they have a much longer shelf life. Mm. And that, relating to a sort of creative audience, that's also the massive power of virtual events is that the creation of the live content is one thing. And it's actually really easy to do because a lot of it's based upon the speaker's expertise and you can record it very quickly and it's canned and whatever. But off the back of that, You've got, you can transcribe it, you can turn it into blogs, you can turn it into white papers, you can turn it into ebooks. You can take the video, you can chop it into 90 second social clips, you can five minute clips, you can add branding, graphics, top and tailor, and you can really go to town in, in the reusability of that content. And it, all it took was like originating it at that live event or that live webinar. And if you can repurpose content in that way, it's a tremendously efficient way for marketing teams to cover like a wide range of media using the same content and really kind of amplify it and turn it into a campaignable kind of asset that we're really excited about next year. I love this idea of taking the magic of the live event experience and then proliferating that on the internet. More and more people are going to have access to these experiences that were otherwise closed off and only happened in a certain amount of days. Now that content can live on. And yeah, Netflix is a great analogy for being able to make that happen. Let's jump into our last segment for today, which is our lightning round. So how this works, Mike, I'm going to ask you a question and you've just got to say the first thing that comes to the top of your head. <laughs> Okay, you ready? This is the the dangerous round, right? This is where the, <laughs> the PR guy on my shoulder is telling me, be careful, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like a series of gotchas here. Okay, and is it one word answers or am I allowed a small sentence? No, you're allowed a couple sentences. Okay, good, yeah. good, okay. Okay, so first question, apart from Glissa, what's one piece of software or hardware that you can't live without? Uh, okay, so on the spot I, i'm going to be really boring and saying i'm a massive slack convert mm -hmm. um so if you're my generation we were like wedded to email and everything was email and when slack came along i was like well what does this do like mm. i can do this on email but now remotely it's just so fundamentally important like to have those micro chats with people and and for me it's also it has to be used in a very different way to email so i i kind of i almost feel like i sometimes have to teach the younger members of staff how you use email and how you construct an email and so on. Whereas with Slack, I find myself maybe teaching some of the older members of staff how you should write on Slack to mm. you know, to get the right response. And maybe that's because I'm in the middle. I'm that Gen X that's kind of crossed over the two. But we're using it like I barely use email now, and that's refreshing, particularly when you can just switch off. The downside with Slack, though, is going on holiday, isn't it? It's like you know you you come back and there's just the stream of messages that 
do I go to the top and read through? So there's, there's still some problems with it, but I think the whole instant messaging to manage things now is just so much easier and refreshing. Totally. It's also funny how you can learn one communication style for Slack, one communication style for email. It's very relevant to the, the platform you're using. I think that's spot on. Yeah, yeah. Next question. What's one interesting piece of media that you've consumed recently? Uh, so in, I'm definitely getting into podcasts all the time now. I think I think they're so easy to to use there. The few times that I do travel and commute in now, there's a valuable use of your time. Mm. And I think that the, particularly stuff, you know, both fiction and nonfiction, I think that podcasts just give you some time back and allow you to fit stuff in. I know, and I'm hoping that one of the questions you, you asked me isn't to recommend a book because every time I get that question on these kind of CEO question things, I'm kind of like, after a day working, I don't read business books. I don't enjoy reading business books. It's like I need to switch off. And so with a podcast, I kind of feel like if I'm listening to business podcast, it doesn't feel like it's impinging on my personal life and giving me more kind of you know, more mental stress than I need. So as a media format, podcasts are really working for me right now. I love that. Yeah, it's important to be able to turn your brain off as well. If you're a CEO, your your company's your baby, you've got to be working all the time and having that break is super important. So looking at things from a, a more glass half full lens, next question. When you're working, what's the time where you're having the most fun? What are the, the activity or the activities you're doing where you come most alive? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I've thought to it myself, as a founder, who continues to get involved in sales pitches to some extent, I still really enjoy a very successful sales pitch, right? Mm. So yeah, that hour conversation with a brand new prospect and you're talking about the product and and when I, if I'm involved, it's less about like show and tell and more about understanding their requirements and understanding their challenges and showing them how the product can meet those challenges. And it's so interesting and exciting to be able to do that. And you leave that call with a buzz. And it, it, part of it's like, hey, it's my baby. I'm glad someone likes my baby. But at the same time, it's the the energy of that. And again, working from home and working virtually, it's so important to get that energy from somewhere because otherwise you're just, um, you know, you've got to manage your mental health. And finding and doing more of the things that make you happy at work is so valuable. And it's really helpful if that involves talking to prospects because it means those prospect calls are rarely a problem. They're always, I'm a, to my sales team, I'm like, put them in my diary. I mm. want to have them. They keep me engaged. They keep me lively. So don't feel like you're not doing your duty by bringing me on a prospecting call. I'd love, I love to do them. I love that. That's such a, a fun way of getting energized as well. And, and work is like seeing your, your product, getting real time feedback from someone who can potentially use it. Well, Mike, this has been a ton of fun. I appreciate you hopping on today. If people want to keep up with you and keep up with your ideas online, where is the best places that they can go to follow you? Yeah, so my LinkedIn, I'll probably accept most people. I'm quite happy to, to build up a LinkedIn network. And I'm on Twitter at Mike Piddock. So all one word, M-I-K-E-P-I-D-D-O-C-K. I don't tweet as much as I used to now that Elon's taken over. I'm reviewing <laughs> my my position there, but I think I'm going to hang around for a bit and see what happens, but mainly Twitter and LinkedIn. And our website has a bunch of blogs. Most anything that has my name against it, I genuinely wrote. It's not guest written. So just search for search by my name on the website. There you go. Does it all himself. Mike, thanks so much. <laughs> cool. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode and any ideas you've got for future content. You can email me directly at ben at workweek.com. 
To keep up to date with the very latest content, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend who might find it useful? I'll see you next time.